26 through 28, we're finally going to finish up chapter 20 or chapter 7 of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 through 28. This is the word of the Lord. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. As many of you know, or maybe you don't know, uh, my undergrad before I went to seminary was in music education. Uh, And I have always loved music. I love what music uh, can do for us um, as a way of moving us. I believe it to be one of the many graces God has given us. When we think about beauty uh, as an abstract thing, it doesn't necessarily make sense with a random earth, but God gave us this beauty, this music, as a blessing. And in music, there's this terminology is called a crescendo. Uh, and there are sometimes short crescendos, but there's also these crescendos that a whole song will build up to a point. I remember in, when I was in high school, our church had a church band and we were i think it was around july 4th we were playing a concert at the church we were playing the great Sousa marches stars and stripes forever and you hit that point you know where it comes to the end of the song that and it goes and it it busts into the big ending and everybody just starts standing up and start clapping that they had been moved to such a point that they responded to the music by standing up and, and clapping along with it. it. It moved them. And this is true of music. It gives us joy. It can also bring tears. I remember, because I was an odd music major, I used to sit around cleaning the house on Saturdays in college listening to St. Matthew's Passion. I mean, everybody does that, right? You're just sitting around your house cleaning the house on Saturday listening to St. Matthew's Passion. And I don't understand German. It was a Bach piece. I don't understand German, but it was moving. The music, you could, you could hear the story of the passion of Jesus. In the song. And in a very similar way, chapter 7 has been building. We began, we looked at Melchizedek, this weird guy in the Old Testament who was priest and king. And we see him as being greater than Abraham, greater than the Levitical priesthood. And then we see that not only is this guy Melchizedek, this odd little fellow in the Old Testament, we also see that he's a type of Christ, what Christ would be perfectly. And so we see Jesus as the better hope of the Old Covenant, and it builds. That Jesus Christ's priesthood is eternal, that it's never-ending, and it builds. And we come here today, and it draws us all, all of this together Jesus is the perfect 
high priest. He's perfectly fitting in his person and his work. He's perfectly fitted for our deficiencies. He's perfectly able to save. He's perfect, perfectly worthy of our worship. And so we come to the end of chapter 7, to the great crescendo that we see set before us. And as we come this morning, we're going to see three things. The person of Jesus, the work of Jesus, and the worship of Jesus. The person of Jesus, the work of Jesus, and the worship of Jesus. As we first come and consider the person of Jesus, we see here that Jesus in his person is sufficient. He is appropriate in every way to be the savior of humankind. One commentator in referencing this says, there's four things you must be confronted with. What is offered? To whom is it offered? By whom is it offered? And for whom is it offered? Two of these in the text are assumed. For whom it is offered is sinful man. He offers sacrifice as high priest for us. And he offers that sacrifice to whom? Which is the holy God. We're left with this text describing us. What is offered? And by whom is it offered? Jesus comes as our high priest. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. John Owen, the Puritan theologian, says, Unholy sinners stand in need of a holy priest and a holy sacrifice. What we do not have in ourselves, we must have in him, or we will not be accepted by the holy God, who has such pure eyes that he cannot look on sin. Such a high priest is the Lord Christ. Such a high priest is Jesus that he takes that which God could not even look upon and he makes it holy and righteous so that we can be accepted by God. Verse 26 tells us five things about the nature of Jesus that makes him fitting in his person to be the one who sacrifices, who is the sacrifice for us. And the first comes in the, in the form of three adjectives. He is holy, innocent, and unstained. He is holy, innocent, and unstained. We could also say he's holy, blameless, and pure. Holy, blameless, and pure. This is who Jesus is in his person. He was born in a manger. He was God and man. He lived the whole of his life perfectly holy, perfectly blameless, perfectly pure. The interesting thing is when we look at the Old Testament and you look at even the lamb of sacrifice, it's somewhat ironic. Maybe ironic is not the best word, but it's somewhat telling you. We need to find the lamb without spot or blemish. If you're going to be critical enough, right, and you go look at a herd of sheep, you're not going to really find, like, that perfect lamb, right? No. They found the best lamb they could find, right? And they made sacrifice. They made do with the best lamb that they could find. But Jesus was not just, I will make do, right? 
Jesus was not just a make-do lamb. He was perfectly holy, innocent, and pure. That's who he is. It describes him. He is, as high priest, sinless. He's everything that we're not. He's everything that the Old Testament priesthood was not. He is able, because of this, to stand before God on our behalf. Well, what else does it say about it? So the first three of the five are holy, innocent, unstained. But then we have these two couplings here, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He is separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. What does it mean that Jesus is separated from sinners? He can't be around That's not what it means. That's the first time lately that you've got it wrong. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that Jesus can't be around sinners. It means that Jesus does not share in our sin. He came and he endured all manner of temptations, but he is separate from our sins. He is holy in a different category from sinful, sinful man. He overcame the temptations and remained sinless. So he is separated from sinners. He does not identify with us in our sin. He identifies with us in our temptation to sin. He understands our temptation, but he was without sin. Second, it says he is exalted above the heavens. He is exalted above every heavenly being. He is seated at the right hand of God with authority and power forever. He is perfect to meet our needs. He is perfect and untouched by sin. He was able to lay down his life for sinners so that we can be forgiven by God. One of the great questions of the Old Testament was the question of Isaac to Abraham as they were going up to Mount Moriah. You know what he says to him? Where's the lamb? Where's the sacrifice? Where is the sacrifice that we are going to come up here and, and, and sacrifice? You know what the answer was? The Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. And the reality is, is that the whole of redemptive history can be summed up in this call and response. Where is the lamb? And the Lord will provide. You think of Adam and Eve in the garden. They're naked and ashamed. They're hiding their clothes, hiding with fig leaves on. Where is the lamb? And Jesus, or God provides that in a promise of Jesus. You, you see it very specifically in the Passover in Egypt, right? You need to take the lamb, take its blood, mark it on your door frames. Where's the lamb? Even in the establishment of the priesthood, all of these things seek to answer where will salvation come from? And the funny thing about the priesthood, the Old Testament priesthood that was insufficient is, it was this great show. It really was this great show. In the priesthood, the death of animals became an institution. The blood never ceased flowing. But all the blood could ever do was make one externally clean. It never could clean them inwardly. You know, Abraham and Isaac went up to Moriah. Do you know where Solomon built his temple? Mount Moriah. 
in the same, I don't know if it's exactly the same place, but in the same area where Abraham was supposed to sacrifice his son Isaac, Solomon builds his temple where you have this now daily just slaughterhouse for forgiveness of sins. And yet the story keeps moving forward with purpose. And it points to another mountain, Mount Calvary. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He was perfectly fitted to meet our need because he was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens or in the heavens. This is who Jesus is in his person. He's what we need. He is the lamb. He is the answer to that question. Where's the lamb? Jesus is the lamb. And so we go back to the the ultimate purpose of Hebrews, right? You Hebrew people who are tempted now to leave Christ and return to this empty religion of sacrifice. Why would you do this? Why would you trust in the emptiness of this world? Why would you trust in the facade of religion? Why would you turn your back on that which is perfect for that which is not perfect? And the question comes to us as well, right? Why would you turn from Jesus to that which is insufficient, be it trusting in yourself or trusting in something else? He is the great crescendo of the Bible. His work is perfect. That's our second point. The work of Jesus. We see, we have seen who he is in his person, but now we see who he is in his work. Interestingly, the the priests were given all these tools for sacrifice. But it, it would be the same as you coming to me and saying, hey, Daniel, here's a hammer and nails. Go and remodel your house. And I would be like, you're giving me the right tools. I don't have the skills. Or you said, here's a, here's a canvas and paint. Go paint a great painting. And I'd be like, I can do a stick figure. They had all the right tools. But they didn't have the right skill set. Jesus was perfect both in his person but also in his work. And if you look at the Old Testament, you look at the priesthood, it was full of pageantry. There was the breastplate and the ephod, which were, the ephod was kind of this like tunic kind of thing. But then there was also a robe that that, that was under it, a a turban and a sash. And it was all this outward adornment, right, that said, I am righteous. They even had like a a gold plate on the, the, the turban that said, holy to the Lord. And you're like... Okay. (laughs) Like it was, hey, look, look at the symbols to point to the reality of what's not true in me. (laughs) It was meant to give the appearance of being righteous, but all it really did was show their shortcomings that the clothes in fact did not make the man. In the most recent Spider-Man movie, because I like those kind of movies, uh, there's this moment where Iron Man had given Spider-Man the suit and he's taking it away now and, and he says, I'm nothing without the suit. And he says, if you're nothing without the suit, then you shouldn't have it. And that's the point here. They, they had the suit, but the suit did not reflect the, their inner righteousness. 
But one commentator equates it to almost like a child's pageant. If you ever had a child and they were up on the stage and maybe they're dressed as a sheep or a palm or something and you go, you can see their face cut out in the middle of it. You're like, well, that's not really a sheep. That's my child dressed as a sheep. They're playing dress up. That's what the Old Testament priests did. They were playing dress up because they couldn't do it. John Calvin says this, what was required for proper discharge of the office was lacking in the priest of the law. The external adornments of the high priest showed this defect because the reality was absent. We don't have to look any further than the day of atonement. The day of atonement started with the high priest doing what? He had to wash. Why did he have to wash? He's not, he was right. He was, he was ceremonially unclean. Then he put on all those garments we described. Then he had the two goats and he put his hand on one of the goat as the scapegoat. And then he went into the Holy of Holies with bells on and ropes around his waist. What do you think the bells were for? If we stop hearing bells, they're dead. dead. We got to pull them out with the rope. Everything about what they did showed their inability. The law appointed men who were weak. But God's son came as perfect in his work. All that they did pointed forward to him. He is the real deal. He is all that we need. Jesus doesn't come into the temple with all the bells and whistles and the clothes that says, holy to the Lord, across his face, across his hat. He doesn't need all that. He doesn't come with a fancy garb. He doesn't come with pomp and circumstances. He comes humbly and meekly. Because he was actually righteous in himself. And therefore his work is sufficient. He's the only place where we can rest. That's why why it says in 27, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifice daily. First for his own sins and then for the sins of people. Because he did it once for all and when uh, when he offered himself up. He's the only place that we can rest in because he was the perfect sacrifice. And therefore, because he is perfect in his person, he is perfect in his work, he is to be worshipped. Verse 28, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints the son who has been made perfect Forever, He his, has been made perfect and therefore is worthy of our worship. We need him. We must come to him confessing our sins, acknowledging our need for mercy and grace, acknowledging that God alone can save us. Until then, we're only worshiping the trappings of religion. Jesus is not just a moral teacher. He is the only perfect sacrifice. In fact, all that he is, all that we come to in worship is the goal of eternity. Worshiping the lamb who was slain, the the, the response of all eternity 
to that question, where is the lamb? It's found, I think, in Revelations 5.12. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. It's the song all redeemed sing in heaven. This wonderful song of heaven, all who are washed forever by the blood of the lamb. The lamb is worthy. The lamb is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Jesus is worthy of our worship. Because the Old Testament priesthood was insufficient. Because the Old Testament priesthood only pointed us to our inability to be reconciled to God. Because it showed us that we had to be perfectly righteous and we knew we were not perfectly righteous. But also because in our imperfection, Jesus comes as that which is perfect. To make sacrifice and he sacrifices himself and he reconciles us to God. And he's sitting right now at the right hand of God, making that continual intercession. That wonderful thing that, that even in our sinfulness, even as you've woken up in sin this morning, even as you leave this place today and you'll, you, you'll continue to sin. And you, we have all manner of sin, right? We'll, we'll, we'll get angry, we'll get prideful, we'll gossip, whatever it may be. Right now, even in our sin, God the Son is sitting next to God the Father. We saw this last week. And he is now saying, that's mine. That is my son. That is my daughter. I have reconciled them. By my blood, I have made them righteous. Right now, he's making that intercession for you. That that never ceases. I know I've said that multiple times in chapter 7. But that never ceases to amaze me. That Jesus, the son of God, right now in your sinfulness is making intercession for you at the right hand of God, the father. I died for that sin. I died for that sin. They are mine. And our whole of eternity as we come into his presence will be consumed with the worship of our God. Which is so counterintuitive. When you think, have you ever woken up on Sunday morning going, do I really have to go to church today? Do I really have to go to church today? I'm too tired. I'm too disheartened. Too overwhelmed by my sin. And we're reminded that Jesus is worthy. He has done what we could not do. He has loved us with this perfect love. And so we should come. We should say, God, I am tired and weary and doubting and lazy. But I need you. I need what Jesus has done. So I come and I give you worship and praise this day, even in my weakness. Because Jesus is perfect in his person. He is able to make sacrifice for he is the perfect lamb who was slain. He is perfect in his work. He did not have to make sacrifice over and over again because his work is finished. This is why he said on the cross, it is finished. I have done what I have came to do. I have made reconciliation 
And he has ascended and sits at the right hand of God the Father, which makes him worthy. He is worthy to be worshipped. And we are to come before him and give him that worship. Turning away from what this world would call us to. We talked this morning in our responsive reading. Do not take the Lord your name in God in vain. And I think we have in very subversive and subtle ways, we have devalued the name of God. We have devalued what he has actually done for us. We make it less. And I think in part we do that because if we make what Jesus has done is less, it makes our problem less. I can feel better about myself if Jesus is not exactly what I think it says he is. But he is. He is all what he is said to be. And the world would call us and have us turn from him. And all manner of, either in calling us through the the lusts of this world, or by coming in and driving a wedge between us and God. And yet we are to continue to turn to him and say, I will not take my eyes from you. I will give you praise for who you are, for what you have done, because you are the perfect savior of souls. I remember my wife telling me this week, she said last week you were saying something and she couldn't even really remember what it was, but she said, I hit this point in your sermon last week where I wanted to stand up and say, amen. I wanted to get up. I never, she says, she said, I never, you know, you have those churches that are very responsive. And she says, I've never felt that. I felt that last week because you said something and just resonated with me. And this is that, that moment of crescendo where we should literally be on our feet going, thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. For while I was a sinner in need of grace, he sent his son to reconcile me, to make me pure in all my sins. He has washed away. And though I will not be perfect in this world, I fix mine eyes on one who is perfect and wholly sufficient for all my needs. So whether I doubt, whether I wonder, whether I stray, Jesus is enough for me. the great crescendo of our faith does that not stir your soul does that not stir you to worship him who is worthy him who is able to save us to the uttermost To save those who draw near to God through him. As it says in verse 25. Since he always, always lives to make intercession for us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you have a great high priest. Whose name is love. Whoever lives to plead for you. That's who you are. That's the wondrous 
gospel reality that you have. Jesus right now is pleading for you. He is pleading for you out of his love for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for Jesus. We're so thankful for what he has done. Lord, we are prone to wonder as the hymn sings. We are prone to leave the God we love. But Lord, take our hearts. Take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. Father, we need Jesus. Daily we need Jesus. Work that wondrous gospel reality out in our life each and every day. And Lord, don't let us treat it as mundane. Let us respond in praise and in worship and in gratitude of a God who has loved us so deeply and so thoroughly. We ask and pray in his holy name. Amen. Please stand as we sing.